Good to be with you all this morning. Always encouraging uh, to see just a room full of men who want to study God's Word. As uh, Jerry prayed, we're going to be looking at just six verses in 2 Corinthians 4. And uh, I wondered uh, earlier this week if Sandy was like making up for the fact that the last time he gave me like 58 verses. So this is great. Really glad to have this. You remember last week, if you weren't here last week, uh, Sandy talked... um, about the whole chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, and how Paul there was uh, talking about the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the new covenant, and as he was describing this ministry, you could see that he was specifically uh, answering the criticisms that were coming from those who were suggesting that, that, that there was something deficient in uh, Paul's gospel. Um, he wasn't necessarily a flashy uh, preacher, he wasn't uh, flashing the way he went about things, he it, it, wasn't, it didn't seem to be as effective uh, as other people thought it should be. Um, they were concerned about the fact that he was leaving parts out of the Old Testament. That was in their minds. They were thinking, you're not, you're not seeing this correctly. Um, and so he's talking about this gospel, and he picks this up as, as we move into these six verses. And we're going to be looking specifically this morning uh, at this idea of the God of this age blinding those who do not believe. And thinking about uh, our own friends, our own family members who don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and wondering about just their resistance to the gospel. Why, is, why, is there, why does there seem to be this, this veil, as it's talked about in 2 Corinthians 3, to the gospel? And I thought, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought it was something that happened many, many years ago. Uh, my son, Zach, I have three kids, Zach, uh, Ben, who's 23, and Zach now, who's 21, and uh, my daughter Ellie, who's 16, and Zach, um, many years ago, I think he was, I think he was three or four years old. Um, and if you, for those of you that don't know Zach, Zach is he, he looks like he doesn't even belong to our family because he's he's uh, he's six one and weighs like 250 pounds and played linebacker and um, it just it looks like we adopted him or something. And uh, um, and the boy can eat. The boy can eat. The boy could eat from the time he was, you know, a fetus. Like he, he was, he was a guy that had no problem eating. And so this is why this story was particularly interesting or weird, or this moment was weird. Um, about four years old, and Zach, uh, I thought to myself after dinner or something like that, I was putting together, uh, getting some ice cream, and I thought, wow, I found this hot fudge. Let's pour this. Zach will love this. I'm going to give him a hot fudge Sunday. What I didn't realize is that Zach had never had a hot fudge sundae before, um, and he told me that. I've no, I, don't, I don't know what that is, and I'm like, oh, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. So I got, he watched me. I put the ice cream. I actually warmed the fudge up on the stove and then, uh, and then poured it all over it, and I'm, and I'm excited to give my son his first hot fudge sundae, and I put it in front of Zach, and Zach's like, I don't, I don't want that. I, I don't like it, and he hadn't touched it yet. And, uh, and I, his words shocked me, you know, because he watched me put, take the ice cream and stick it in the bowl. He watched me warm up the hot fudge and pour it over the, uh, and I'm like, no, no, you're going you're gonna to love this. Like, this is, you know, this is going to change your life, son. Like, you're gonna... And he says, I don't, I don't like it. And I'm like, you haven't tasted it yet. You can't possibly know that you don't like this. And he's like, I, I just know. I just know I won't like it. And I'm like, you like ice cream, right? I like ice cream. You like chocolate. I like chocolate. This is together. <laughs> like chocolate and ice cream together. I, don't, I won't like that. 
And, I'm, and I, I remember I got a, some of the spoon, I, I got some of the ice cream, and, try, and I'm holding the spoon in front of him. You know, again, now it starts to look like child abuse, but I was going to make sure this kid tasted the hot fudge sundae. And I'm holding the spoon, and he's like, I, I don't like it, don't make me eat it, don't make me eat it. And I'm thinking, if you could just get this in your mouth, <laughs> it would, we, we'd solve everything. Like, everything would be okay. You wouldn't be able to stop eating hot fudge sundaes. I couldn't, I couldn't get him to do it. I couldn't, and finally I'm like thinking, I, I can't force him to do this. And he's like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that. I just, I just want some ice cream. So fine, fine, fine. I gave him just the ice cream, and he, and he ate that. And I don't know when it was that he realized hot fudge sundaes are like way better than just ice cream. But I remember thinking many years after that time, boy, that's a lot of times like what it is with the gospel, isn't it, with our friends. You're like, if you could just taste Christ, <laughs> if you could just taste him, You'd be, able to, you'd be able to see this is, this is the thing you've been searching for your, your whole life. And so as we look at these verses this morning, I want us to think of that. And actually, I really want you to think of friends and family members you know, that you long for them to know Christ. You long for them. And when you think about it, 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 it hurts your soul because you want them to know. And I want us to, to look at that. I also want us to be thinking a little bit about our own, our own conversion. When you came to know Christ, because you're going to see Paul bring this out in these verses, um, his own heart is coming out. In fact, uh, Sandy talked, I don't know if he talked about it last morning, but I think he talked about it the week before. What's great about 2 Corinthians is that you, you, you see the brilliance of Paul, but you're seeing in response to these criticisms, and you're starting to see the heart of Paul. And you see his passion where, where he, he's... Brilliant, and his arguments make sense, but you can see his, his passion, his heart just coming out in the midst of this. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful upper-handed ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we look at these things this morning, I first want us to see in verses 1 and 2 that the problem is not with the gospel message. The problem is not with the gospel message. You know, Paul's, uh, those who were criticizing Paul, um, their argument was that there was something wrong with the gospel message the way that Paul was bringing it. It didn't seem to be effective. There weren't there weren't tons of people coming to know Christ. There weren't enough converts. So maybe there's something wrong with this gospel message. And you see in the, the verse, verse 1 there, he says, Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This ministry of the new covenant is from God, is he saying. And it's important for us, it's not just the ministry, he says. He says this ministry. This ministry of the new covenant is from God. And what he's saying here is is hey, there's, there's this ministry, the one I'm doing, as opposed to that ministry that, my, that those who are, who are uh, opposing me are preaching. Their ministry. 
the ministry I have, this ministry, is opposed to that ministry, is from God. And as a result of it being from God, there's some things that, that can come out of that. Um, first of all, you see in that verse, he says, uh, we're humble, because he says, by the mercy of God. He's not coming just arrogantly, but he's saying, this ministry that I have is from God, and, I'm, and, and I understand that it's by the mercy of God. And when he says, by the mercy of God, those are words of humility. I mean, if you need mercy, you're not coming to someone arrogant and having your act together. You're coming to someone, you're coming, he's coming and saying, listen, I, I understand the mercy of God. I, <laughs> I've received mercy. So this ministry I have is not because I've got my act together. This ministry I have is because God in his mercy has given to us. And so when we think about the gospel ministry or the gospel presentation that we give to in our, the world around us, we need to come to it recognizing over and over and over again that God has been merciful to us. And so we come to our friends and our family members. We come in humility um, because we understand God has been merciful to us. And then he, then he also says at the end of that verse, verse 1, that we're bold. We do not lose heart. And he's gonna, he starts out, you're going to see next week, I think it's uh, uh, Gary who's preaching uh, next week or teaching next week, you're going to see that the idea of not losing heart frames the beginning and the end of chapter 4. He's saying we're going to be bold. We're not going to give up. So we're, we're, we're humble. We're not arrogant. But we're bold. I mean, we're going to say it. We're not saying it because there's something in us about how we have our stuff together. We're saying it because this is from God. This message that we have is from God. It's important for us, I think, even in the way, even in the way we communicate um, the gospel message, even with each other, to have that great mixture of humility and boldness. And so boldness doesn't mean you're not being humble. You don't come, but at the same time, boldness is not about arrogance. <laughs> in fact, I would say it's a lot more about humility. When you know it's not about you, and you know it's about Christ, you can come with greater boldness. And that's what Paul is saying here. And then you see, not only that, but this ministry they have causes them to be transparent. Verse, uh, verse 2, um, he uh, pulls out four things that, that are going on here with him. And these are four things dealing specifically with the criticisms he's receiving uh, from other people. And he says, first of all, you know, we've renounced sinful ways. We have, we're living repentantly. And these are all ideas around the idea of being transparent. I mean, we've got nothing to hide. And we have renounced our past. We're, we're, we're not like those other teachers who aren't really living repentantly, who aren't really putting away their past life. And he's saying, man, we're, this, is, this ministry, we're living repentantly. I've renounced those sinful ways. And he goes on to say, I, I'm, not, I'm not practicing cunning. I'm not tampering with the gospel. I'm just giving you the clear gospel message. And we're all tempted, I think, I think all the time. I think in our churches we, we do this all. I think in America especially. We, we have a tendency to think that the problem is with the message that's coming out of our church. Boy, we could just get more members or people would stay around or this Bible study could grow if we did this, that, the other thing. And we're all tempted. I'm tempted to it. I'm tempted almost every time I teach to want to figure out a way to take what's here and somehow, you know, let's make the Bible exciting. What, a, what an odd phrase. <laughs> Makes the Bible exciting. The problem with the, the message is that 
I'm sinful and you're sinful. And we have sinful hearts. There's nothing wrong with this. It doesn't need to be dressed up. We don't need to tamper it. We don't need to, we don't need to put new you know, flashes on it. We don't need to, to create you know, light shows and things like that to, to make this come alive. It's not alive because the Holy Spirit, we're not letting the Holy Spirit work in certain places. Or because we're, tr- we're covering it up with trying to dress things up. And Paul's saying, no, I'm, I, l- listen, the message I'm giving, I'm not tampering with the gospel. I'm not going to try to use smooth ways to try to get you to see something. Um, and so maybe my message, he's saying, maybe my message isn't, maybe I'm not the greatest preacher. And you, I don't know if you thought about this before, but, uh, but it seems pretty apparent that Paul wasn't necessarily a really interesting preacher. Um, you look and compare him with Peter, right? Peter gets up on, uh, on the day of Pentecost and preaches this magnificent sermon. And, uh, and after it, 3,000 people are saved. You know, and, and wow, blown away by that. And then we see other, we see sermons by uh, Paul. We see one at the Areopagus, and, and we think, oh, that in, in Acts 16, I think it is. And we think, oh, it's brilliant the way he, the way he talked. He took their, uh, their temple to an unknown God and how he wove that into an understanding of the God that you don't know has revealed himself in Christ. And you look at that sermon, and we have a tendency to go, wow, that would, Paul is a brilliant preacher. And then you look at the result of the sermon. Peter's sermon, 3,000 people are saved. After Paul gives that time at the Areopagus, it says a few people stayed afterwards and wanted to ask him some more questions. <laughs> so he wasn't necessarily known as this great, flashy preacher. And that's why the criticism were coming. And he was saying, listen, I'm just going to give the clear gospel. The gospel doesn't need to be dressed up. And, I, and then he goes on, finally, the fourth thing in that, in that verse 2, say, I'm just going to, we're just giving you the open truth. And, and before God, our conscience before God is clear. Like, we are who we are. This message is this message. And, and our audience, he's saying, is just God. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to judge how I did in my conversation with you about the gospel by how you responded or what you think of my presentation. But I'm just going to, did I, did I honor you today, God? And any of us, whether you teach a Bible study of, of three men or you, you get the opportunity to stand up in front of here and teach 400 men, the real audience for me this morning has got to be the Lord. It can't be you. I've got to, I've got to answer to Him. And then how you receive it, <laughs> how you interact it, that's between you and the Lord. And you answer to him, you don't, you don't answer even to the men around you. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. It's just, uh, you know, we, we're going to be open before you because this, this gospel message we received is from God. Well, then and secondly, in verses three, 3 and 4, we're going to see that the problem is spiritual blindness. Because those who are criticizing Paul would say, okay, fine, you have this you have the clear gospel. You have the right gospel. You're not tampering with it. You're not using clever speech. Okay, Paul, uh, nobody's coming to know Christ. <laughs> At least not as many as seem to be converting to some of these other Judaizers. A lot more people seem to be interested in what they're saying than in what you're saying. So your clear gospel, could it really be the right thing? Because it doesn't seem to be very effective. 
And we can get into that as well, can't we, even in our churches, where we can think, well, gosh, if we just, if we just made the message be like this a little bit, if we, if we maybe talked a little bit more about the way God blesses you rather than about suffering, <laughs> if we talked a little bit more about how, you know, man, don't, let's not worry about our sin. Let's just, you know, whatever, God is a God of love and he's just going to receive you. And, uh, you know, whatever you believe, God understands. Well, if we did that, wouldn't we get more people? Boy, if you preach this message of sin and repentance, there's not going to be as much a response to that. Um, so could this really be effective? This seems to be more effective. And then Paul says, no, the problem is not the gospel message. The problem is spiritual blindness. That's the real issue here. And that's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he's showing us that a veil remains over the lost. A veil remains over the lost. I have a, uh, I have a good friend. Um, we've been friends for 12 years. Uh, he, um, he's one of the most uh, uh, honest and genuine men I know. And uh, he, he does not have a relationship with Christ. Um, he, uh, we've had many conversations about the gospel. Um, one of his biggest struggles, and he's not, he's not from Memphis, one of his biggest struggles um, is that he, he sees a lot of people who say that they're believers. He says this to me. He says, I, I see a lot of people who claim to be Christians, and I see the way they live, and uh, it just seems like a bunch of hypocrites to me. And he's not, he's not one of those guys who's always screaming hypocrisy in the church. He's just plainly saying, I'm not sure I see what the difference is here. And as he and I have walked together, he's just become a dear friend. And, uh, and man, it hurts my heart that, that he doesn't know Christ. I mean, it just it hurts. And we've had, we've had conversations about it. Um, I've given him... I've given him more C.S. Lewis books than maybe I even own myself, you know. Um, he's, uh, you know, almost every time I've, I've preached uh, on Sunday morning, um, he'll come. You know, he'll say, let me know the next time you're preaching, and he'll, he'll come. And, I mean, some, he, he's, he's come on days when, the, when it was clear that I was calling, the, God, the, the message I was preaching was coming from the Scripture, was calling sinners to repentance. And... Uh, and afterwards, I'll talk, and I'll be like, hey, you did a good job today. You know, and I'm like, no, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. And you just, I just wonder, like, what's going on here? And I tell you what, my, my heart would despair if I didn't understand what we're seeing here in these verses. That there is a, a, a veil over his eyes. And you read in this passage, there's this, there's this veil, and there's a tendency, the way it's worded, it, it seems to, it appears, or to us on first glance, like what's happening is that this veil, that God has put this veil uh, over the gospel, like that, that the gospel is hidden. Like, so here's, here's the gospel and the veil is here. That's not what's going on here. Here's the gospel and the veil is here. It's over the person, it's not over the gospel. And we see these wording come out in a previous chapter. Remember last week in verses uh, 14, looking at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. It says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day 
When they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And then verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So the veil doesn't lie over the message. A veil lies over their own hearts. And then he goes on in verse 4 and shows us that Satan is at work in the midst of the lost. Satan is at work, excuse me, in the minds, not midst. Satan is at work in the minds of the lost. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, our Bibles say they're the God of this world, and it would be better translated from the original language, the God of this age, because we can get this idea that that there's this dualism. You know, like there's God of the Bible, the, the creator God, God of heaven, the God of the gospel, and then there's this God of this world, Satan, and that these, there's these two warring factions going on. And some theologians in the first three centuries, in an attempt to try to help understand this idea of blindness, really went too far in some of their um, application of this passage to suggest that this blindness was being, was being caused uh, uh, by Satan because Satan had kind of equal power with God and they, they, they set up this idea of a dualism. But really here in these verses and as you look at other scripture, what you see over and over again, what's being said here is that the God, and you see it's a little g, the God of this age, the God of this world, what Paul is really saying here is it's a fake God. It's a no God. <laughs> it's more of a, it's not quite a mocking of Satan. It's more of a just let's put things in perspective. We have God and then we have this no God of this world that is blinding their minds. And so it's not that, they're, that, that, that Satan and God are at, are at war and we're wondering who's going to win. That's not what's happening at all. In fact, as you, as you look throughout Scripture, you're going to see clearly that this blindness that an unbeliever has, the blindness that you had before you came to know Christ, you weren't just this, <laughs> you weren't just this passive, you know, it's not like you were born passive to sin, you know. You weren't born neutral. Uh, we were born sinners, and, and our blindness, there's a lot of material Satan had to work with. <laughs> You know, he didn't have to drum up a lot of stuff in our lives. I've often thought about this many times. You know, people say, well, I, I just, you know, Satan's tempting me, Satan's tempting me. And I think to myself, well, first of all, Satan is not omniscient. God is omniscient. He knows all of our thoughts. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't necessarily know all our thoughts. And you're like, well, wow, how can he be so successful at tempting me? You know, he must know my thoughts. And I'm like, no. It's just obvious what material he needs to work with in our lives. Like, we're, we're, it's, it's, you can't, you spend a couple, three days with me and you'll figure out where Todd's temptations are. And you don't need to know my thoughts. <laughs> you can just see it. And so there is in, in us already a lot of material to create blindness. And so there is a, this blindness certainly is that God has allowed the blindness to happen. And the blindness is certainly perpetuated by Satan himself. But this blindness really begins with our own sinfulness. I can show you this if you go back to Romans chapter 1. It makes real clear what Paul is talking about here. Romans chapter 1, 
looking at verse 18, and you're going to see this kind of come out all in this passage. Romans 1, beginning at verse 18, talking about unbelievers, talking about this blindness. This is what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So already you're getting to see the blindness. The truth is there. There's nothing wrong with the message. There's nothing wrong with the message. The truth is there. But in our sinfulness, we suppress the truth. An unbeliever is suppressing the truth. It's not that they don't know that there's truth. There's truth that's being suppressed. And then it goes on, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So we start not neutral. We start as sinners who suppress the truth. Because what can be known about God Mainly his invisible qualities, those ideas that he is creator, that there is a God who is a creator. We're not talking about a sun God or, you know, the earth God. We're talking about God of the Bible. That is known by all of humanity. But in our sinfulness, we suppress this truth. So we're without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now we begin to see the blindness. And it says here in verse 4 of Corinthians 4, it's a, their, their minds have been blinded. And here you see in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, talks about their thinking being darkened. Okay, so now the, the veil is coming over. And it goes on. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And here now we see God's, uh, what they call the divine passive, where God is letting them, allowing them to move to blindness. Because it says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, and here you see it again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships with those that are, that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relationships with, with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts and men receiving with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit, see, blindness, to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so you see here, in our sinfulness, we suppress the truth. Our, our hearts became darkened. There became a foolishness in our minds. And as we were driven by our own sinfulness, not only driven by our own sinfulness, but the, the God of this world, the no God of this world, the fake God of this world, Satan himself working to move us away from God, having plenty of material to work with. We became not only darkened, but we became blind. And, as, and, and God, you know, turned them over. And it wasn't, it wasn't like they were trying to seek after God. We were trying to seek after God and God said, no. We were actually running in this direction. 
and, and, and God let us keep running in our sinfulness. And so there is a sense in which when you don't know the Lord, you're just blind. You're just spiritually blind. And that doesn't affect the gospel. In fact, I love this quote by, by John Calvin. I meant to put it on, on your notes so you just have it. But here's this quote from John Calvin. The blindness of the unbelievers in no way detracts from the clarity of his gospel. The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of his gospel. For the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive its light. When you're blind, it's not the sun's problem. It's your problem. Boy, I tell you, that's a, that's a sobering thought. To come to grips with the fact that, that my friend is blind to the gospel. There's a veil over him. His, his mind is darkened. He's blind. And so, as he sits even in our sanctuary and he hears the word preached, there's a blindness. He can't see the sun. He can't see the light. And that's why people don't respond necessarily the way we think to the gospel. And you think, well, gosh, that's just despairing. What's the answer? What's the answer for my friend? How, how is this going to change? And we see in these last two verses that the answer is the recreative work of God. The answer is the recreative work of God. You see Paul's heart come out in these six verses because you keep seeing these words of blindness and light. And you think about that for a second. Over and over again in these six verses, this idea of blindness and light, and your eyes being opened. What happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9? His life, he was, he was blind to the gospel. Paul, Paul actually, when they went to stone Stephen, as Stephen was there preaching the gospel, talking about Christ lifted up, and in anger, these, the Jewish leaders you know, put, him in, put him in the middle of this area and were going to kill him. And Stephen's there in front of them saying, Lord, I, I, I give you my spirit. And then he says, while he's being pelted with these rocks and, and on his way to his death, he says, Lord, please forgive them for they don't understand because they're blind. And who's right there approving, holding the coats of those who are throwing the rock? It's Saul or it's Paul. Paul remembers that. Paul remembers what it was like to be blind and to be right there. And then he goes on and in his blindness, he actually thinks the very best thing he can do for God is to get rid of these Christians. And he's on the road to Damascus with these letters to arrest these Christians. And what happens? God breaks in. The light breaks in. The answer for Paul was the recreative work of God. And he just... He just grabs Saul and he just brings the light. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 9, it just talks specifically that, that this, all of a sudden there was, this, there was this light that just burst forth. 
And the light of the gospel came into his life. And he even says, he says, who are you, Lord? I mean, he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And Christ reveals himself to Paul. And so, when we think about the answer for our friends, our family members, let's not lose sight of our own conversion stories. And I say recreative work because you see in verse uh, 6 that he says, this God who said, let light shine in the darkness, has now made the light shine in your hearts. That's why we always say that redemptive work is recreative work. It's because he's talking about creation when God says, let there be light. And now he, he connects creation to what happened in your heart and my heart. That there is this recreative work that takes place. And the same way that God brought light to begin the world, He is bringing that light into people's lives to recreate them. To make them, and we'll see later in, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, uh, new creations in Christ, it says. And so, we see in verse 5 that we proclaim Christ and not ourselves. We proclaim Christ and not ourselves. Oh, boy, if I could just get this <laughs> straight in my head. The answer, the answer for my friend is not my clever thinking. The answer for my friend is Christ. But I tell you what, I, I, get, that, I get that wrong a lot. I think, gosh, if I could just get him to kind of understand what I'm saying, and I start to think about my own, uh, uh, you know, way of going about this. I remember when I first met him, I thought, what I really need to do is I need, him, I need to get him to like me. Because <laughs> if he finds me likable, then maybe he'll accept my message. And we can mess that up in, in East Memphis all the time, can't we? Because we, we like to be hospitable. We like to be thought of as polite and all that. So it's important for us to, and, and sometimes we can, we can think, well, that's I need to present myself. I need to become presentable. And then when I'm presentable, then that somehow will pave the way for the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting we try to not be <laughs> nice or kind. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's, that's not the key to your friend's conversion. You're, you being presentable is not the key. And I hope that, I hope that relieves you of a lot of stress. Because some of you are thinking that the reason your friend isn't coming to know Christ is that you're just terrible at presenting the gospel. I, that's not it. <laughs> In fact, you could, fumble the, you could fumble the gospel, and when God's recreative work wants to strike, it'll strike. I talked to a friend of mine um, just a couple, three days ago, and he's talking about the, when he was a, a senior in high school, and, uh, and he knew he needed to present the gospel to uh, this friend who was on the basketball team with him. And, uh, but he didn't know what to say, but he's really feeling led by the Lord to do it. And, uh, and so he started down the road with this guy as he's driving him home. And he said, I don't really remember what I said. And I'm, not, I'm not even sure it kind of made sense. But all of a sudden, this guy said, started telling me the struggles in his life and said, man, I, I, really, I really want what you have, Brian. I really want to, I really want to know uh, Christ. How do I do that? <laughs> and Brian said, I realized I didn't know, I didn't know what to tell him next. I, and I just finally said, uh, I don't know, but we can drive over to my, my, my youth pastor's house and he can tell you. <laughs> and he said his, his friend came to know Christ. So the presentation was terrible. <laughs> it was, it, it, and it's, you looked, if you watched it, you would say, that's, that's, a, that's a complete bomb. Like, don't, it would never be used as an example for how to share the gospel. But that's not the issue. We don't, 
Paul says we're not presenting ourselves, we're presenting Christ. We're just presenting ourselves as servants. We're just going to be made available to you. As we think about our lost friends, that's what we're doing. It's not about how can we dress ourselves up to make sure that they're, you know, we, we start to think, I, if I can just change this about me, this about me, this, I can just do this, I can, you know. No, 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 no. You just be a servant. So the friend that I have who is lost, I just got to be a servant. I just got to be available. I got to be available to speak the clear word of truth. So I just, that's what I got to do. And I, gotta be, I just got to be willing. I just got to be a servant in this. I don't, I'm not going to present him myself. I want to present Christ. And we need to do that in our churches as well. We don't, we don't present ourselves. We're not presenting our church. We're presenting Christ. And we want to make sure we give the clear gospel. We don't mix it with worldliness. We don't try to dress it up. When you start trying to dress things up in our churches or in our own lives because we think that somehow will make the gospel more palatable, what ends up happening is that we're presenting ourselves, we're not presenting Christ. And the real work here is when God decides he's going to do a recreative work in someone's life. And he's asked us to just be available, just be servants, just, be, just share the gospel and trust him. Well then finally in verse 6, we see that this is the way the gospel came to us. And this is so important. This is the way the gospel came to us. For the God who said, light, light, shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This same conversation I had last Monday night with my, my friend, uh, Brian, he was talking about the fact that when we share the gospel out of guilt, we, we, we're, it's going to be... It's, it was never meant to be that way. And usually when we think about personal evangelism, it's this, this idea of guilt. Ah, I, better, I should share the gospel more. I should share the gospel more. He says, this, did, guilt always, he said, guilt always confines you. It always puts you in a prison. He said, if, you wanna, if we want to become good evangelists, it's about gratitude. A good evangelist is someone who is overjoyed by what God has done in their own lives. And that's what Paul is, is telling you. We're seeing Paul's heart here. Paul is saying, I know what it's like to be blind. And God did this recreative work in my life. And you see over and over again this unbelievable gratitude of Paul. He's just so thankful that God has rescued him. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He talks about the persecution that he did. And, and there's not a guilt here. There's a gratitude. God has rescued me. I've been set free. And so that's why he has all this wording that comes out that talks about this, this gratitude. It's so important for us to remember our own blindness. To remember what it was like for us to be blind. To remember, as we look at our friends who came to know Christ, or our family members who came to know Christ, to remember the time before that when they were blind. And boy, your compassion starts to stream out. Your own gratitude starts to stream out. I grew up in a Christian home, but I don't think I came to know Christ until I was 16 years old. And I remember, I remember the, the, the time in my life. I can, I can feel the moment. By, by weird circumstances, I was a junior in high school, and I had, I mean, everything was going right for me by the world standards. Everything. I mean, I was, I was, I was on a, a state championship soccer team. I was getting awesome grades. I was student body vice president. 
Um, I was well-liked by a ton of... I mean, every, everything external was just in my favor. And I would cry myself to sleep at night because I was so lonely. I was so unbelievably lonely, which was so weird to me and, and actually increased my loneliness because I could walk down the hall at my school and almost everybody would make a point to say hey to me because they so badly wanted to be able to somehow connect with Todd and his group. And then I'd go home and I would cry myself to sleep because I just the loneliness would just sweep over me. And I'd, I wasn't even crying out to God. I was just in despair. And brothers... <laughs> I don't know exactly what night during that fall of my junior year it happened. But I just, my testimony is the Lord met me in the darkness of my room. And he revealed himself to me. Not because I called out to him. Not because I sought him. Not because I was theologically smart or I understood that God, what I showed you in Romans, I'd have no clue how that fit into anything. And even though I was in the church, I was lost. I was blind. And God just chose to reach down and save me. He just chose to open my eyes. I would have never chosen him. I could have gone my whole life and I would have, my blindness would have increased. But he grabbed a hold of me. Psalm 40 is a psalm that's dearly precious to me because it's my own testimony. Testimony of God reaching down into the pit. I was in the pit of destruction. I was creating my own destruction. And God reached down into that pit and he grabbed a hold of me and he put me on a rock. And then it goes on to say that he, that he put in Psalm, Psalm 40, he put a new song in my mouth. Brothers, even as I stand before you and I speak and I know by God's grace and his mercy that he has been given me the gift of teaching. I'm well aware it's a gift. <laughs> I'm well aware it's not me. I, 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 was, never, I was never a clever speaker. <laughs> this is all God's doing. He just did it. It's his recreative work in my life. Oh, and so I look at my friend, and I think, oh, I can't wait for the day when God reaches down into my friend's pit of destruction and he grabs a hold of him and he puts his feet on a rock. And brothers, I believe it's going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. And I don't know why it hasn't happened yet, but I pray faithfully for my friend. And I spend time with him and I'm available and I'll talk freely about the gospel. And I know it's not that, that the reason he hasn't received it is because my message stinks. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with my message. It's clear. The gospel is clear. It's his blindness. But I know someday, I know someday, God is going to do that. God is going to open his eyes. And let me just tell you, I don't think from Scripture you can make a point, honestly, that, there is, that there's just going to be a handful of people in heaven. I really don't. I don't, think it, I don't believe in universalism. I don't think eventually everybody gets saved. But you look in Romans chapter 5 and you make connections with the promise given to Abraham and then the scene in, uh, in Revelation this, in the throne room of heaven where it says, Behold, I saw a multitude which no one could count from every tribe, language, tongue, people. You see that and you connect that to the promise that was made to Abraham when God says, Abraham, you go, look, go outside, look at the stars, count them if you can. 
so shall your offspring be. And then you look at, at Romans chapter 5 and it says, it says in Romans chapter 5, uh, hey, as, as death came through one man, Adam, how much more, how much more will life come through Christ? Brothers, I, I, I sincerely believe from Scripture and, and even, even the, the stingy Presbyterian John Calvin <laughs> says this too. The gospel, the effects of the gospel are going to blow away the effects of Adam's sin. Blow it away. Absolutely obliterate it. And I believe God is going to save a lot of people. A lot of people. And I can look at that out of gratitude. Do you, do you remember your own blindness? Do you recognize that it wasn't your own cleverness, your own, what it wasn't, it was that God reached down into your darkness, grabbed a hold of you, and gave you the light of the gospel. And when the light comes to us, what does the light do? The light lets us see Jesus in a new way. Man, the whole world, almost the whole world knows about Jesus, except for 2.91 billion people who don't, never heard the word of Jesus, and we've got to do something about that. But billions and pe- billions of people, probably almost everybody in Memphis has, has heard the name Jesus, but they don't see Jesus like you do because their eyes haven't been opened. But when your eyes are opened, you see Christ in a, in a completely new way. You see him as he is. You see him as, this, as the one who, who has rescued you, has redeemed you. You see him as the one who is beautiful, who's worth your whole life. And it's just that God has, his light has come in and you see in the face of Christ the very gospel and everything that's, that's happening. And that's why Paul can write in Colossians chapter 1, we'll end with this, about Christ. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Christ all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Christ, has reconciled in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is Jesus Christ. And because the recreative light of the gospel has come into your lives, you know what I'm talking about. You know it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives that show us what is being said here. We would never know it if your Holy Spirit didn't reveal it to us. No matter how clever the teacher No matter how brilliant, we would never know these things except that you revealed them to us. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for reaching down into our darkness and grabbing a hold of us. And Father, right now we lift up the names of our friends, our family members, and we long for them to know the recreative work of God in their lives. Lord, I pray for my friend. I pray that you would break into his darkness. 
you take away his blindness. You would have mercy on him as you had mercy on me. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.